Turn back in your Bible to Judges chapter 7. First four verses and then skipping to verse 15 for our purposes today. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp, in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all. <clears throat> and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place, round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. Stand with me again, please, if you will, and we're singing from the supplement of the Hymn book, stand with me please. Number 76 in the supplement.
be still my heart, these anxious cares, to thee are burdens, thorns, and snares, they cast dishonor on thy Lord, and contradict his gracious word brought safely by his hand thus far why wilt thou now give place to fear how canst thou want if he Judges chapter 7 and verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. It has been observed by the pastor in our current study of the book of Judges that no attempt is being made to make every possible application or exposit every verse across which we come. And yet many times in the regular course of sifting the ground, good things have turned up to our sight, which were not those things specially intended to examine. Occasionally, however, in order that we have bread for traveling, if you will, they are picked up and presented to our attention. And so, as occasion allows, we take from these extra loaves the Lord has left on the table and honor His kindness. Proverbs 4 and 7, and all thy getting, etc., etc. In that spirit, I would ask you to go back with me this morning to some ground recently covered in Judges 7. I cannot hope to improve upon the treatment already underway in this chapter, but I do wish to answer the challenge of the preacher in this portion of the narrative to say a word on the march 
of Gideon. Now famous, not for its movement, but for its destination. And yet I would look at its movement more than its destination. This, in my opinion, is some of that seed that has fallen between the rows. Who can miss the great bounty in the miracles? Certainly. The glorious encounter with the angel under the tree. The puzzling test of the fleece. The exhilarating tent door espionage in the enemy camp. Not to mention the stupendous, sovereign choreography of confusion in the valley of Jezreel after 300 men broke their pitchers in the night. But ordinary things glue together extraordinary things. And sometimes are as forgotten as they are pivotal. Sort of like a plain jute string might have its part in an unforgettable glow of warmth and joy over a cool and unforgettable evening garden party when it drapes the lovely golden bowls. The march of Gideon's 300 is like this, in my opinion. It's a simple chord leading on from miracles to miracles. But the pastor was right in noting it's worthy of its own study. Specifically, this thing about it is notable. It was in the dark. It goes like this in the record, verse 19. So Gideon came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And isn't it the way of the Bible to capture great events in little grammar? Like Genesis 1.11, let the earth bring forth grass and tens of thousands of species of grass simply are. Momentous doings in minuscule phrases. Like Genesis 1.16, he made the stars also. And just like that, billions of suns flicker their light into an unmeasured vastness. Among men, he varies little in this rich brevity, so Gideon came unto the camp. <laughs> this unlikely hero, this unlikely hero, this skittish Jew, only lately goaded from skulking behind a wine press, frightened into testing a god with water and wool, trembling at the helm of a little army, weaponless army, just look at him now. Feeling his way through the darkness of Jezreel with a clay pitcher in his hand. As harmless in that moment as a servant girl late returning from her chores. But look again. Because here is a procession of certainty. A little band of runners with a decree from Jehovah. A special force outnumbered 450 to 1. 300 little sparks that would burn the mighty Midian to the ground. Yes, sir. Here is an epic event indeed. What an absurd and apparently misunderstood word is this epic. Epic now is usually an act of sports or 
foolish buffoonery, and almost always narcissistic. For any Gen Z folks listening, that's when a person has an excessive interest in themselves. And the new epic is barely remembered past the end of the recap or the viral clip, all of which is ironic since a real epic is a long poem about legendary adventures and actual heroism. But Gideon is an epic leader. And the events of Judges 7, these are epic events. I make no attempt, however, to address the astounding highlights of this record. That has been and is being done before you in this same pulpit. Today, I would have you see the connective part. That the mundane and regular plays in the spectacular and extraordinary. I wish to draw your attention briefly and very simply to a quiet nighttime march. But a word about the place is necessary. Chapter 6 and verse 33 says this, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Mori in the valley. May I say this about Gideon and Jezreel? He was, and it is. It may seem too obvious to say, but it will serve us well to keep in our minds during the story of Judges that these are real things. Real people and real places. There is more left out than is said in the record of the ordinary details. But a bit of investigation is very informative for us in helping us to form a right view of these events. It's no secret to most of you that I have a relationship with maps and geographical features. and Therefore, I could not avoid them in the examination of this text. Ought not to have avoided them. You should know this about Gideon's march. It was in a real place. It involved real men. The parties to the conflict were real nations situated on real land. I hope I'm making my point. The climate, the terrain, the distances all figured in to the workings of the Lord and served to instruct us in the basics of biblical obedience. Because the obedience that God requires, you see, is not in the abstract. It's anchored in real dirt and trees, real rocks and streams. The obedience God requires cannot be separated from the back roads in my county. Or the shoelaces on your shoe. It's not in certain contexts. Or with special or favorable conditions. It is right now. On earth. 
in your place, in your culture, at your house, under your trees, during our weather, on our hills, in our plains, at your table, on your job, in the anxious and the calm, the ordinary and the unusual times, but especially in the ordinary. Monotonous, tiresome marches often draw the line from momentous orders to momentous battles. Monotonous, tiresome, and sometimes anxious marches usually draw the line from momentous orders to momentous battles. And so for the purposes of our task today, allow me to set the scene before your mind's eye. You may still visit the Valley of Jezreel today, but if you cannot, seek out a photograph and consider these great histories in light of the real place. Many hundreds of thousands have spilled their blood in the valley of Jezreel over the ages, but still more have been sustained by it. It's a mostly flat, open valley, roughly in the shape of an arrowhead pointing northwesterly, reaching some 30 miles from the Jordan Valley east of Israel to Mount Carmel in the west, 12 to 15 miles wide. In all of Israel, it's the smoothest access westerly from all points east of Israel. It is and has been the most fertile area in Israel. It's their breadbasket. It's nourished by two major rivers that run one west to the Mediterranean. That's the same river, children, where Deborah and Barak met Sisera. It's still there today. And one east to the Jordan River, separated by a watershed line near the eastern end of Jezreel. Jezreel is the southern border of Galilee, bounded by the mountains of Samaria on the south and the hills of lower Galilee on the north where Nazareth lay. If you were to stand on the top of Mount Carmel today, and you can, on the western end of Jezreel, that same Mount Carmel where a very real Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. And look east up the wide valley. On a clear day, you'll see Mount Gilboa. And across from the hill of Moab, up the valley of Jezreel. Keep that in your mind. Keep it in your mind. Go now in your mind's eye to that same Mount Gilboa. Some 1,400 feet above the valley floor. And look down the slopes toward the hill of Moab. On most any day you can see where the well of Herod lay just beneath you, running out from under Gilboa itself. Still today where Gideon's men were tested by the Lord. If 
if you were there some years after our story, you would see Saul and many desperate men clawing up these same slopes as Philistine arrows pursued them from the valley. He would die there with three of his sons. But today, we find Gideon pitched, overlooking the camping site at Mahian Harod, the spring of Herod. Now look over Gideon's shoulder as he surveys the valley. Look north and a little to the west. You will see what he sees, the shape of the hill of Mori, at the base of which 135,000 Midianites are camped. What do you suppose was in his mind that afternoon? Why were they in this valley? Well, chapter 6 explained. So it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. And left no sustenance for Israel. Neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents. And they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. They were there. They were there. Look over Gideon's shoulder. As he squatted on those slopes. And looked beyond Machayan Haro. 135,000 Midianites. In the valley. Why were they there? To destroy it. They were there because this. Was the production lifeline of Israel. This was a place of great bounty. God had given Israel a place of supply and blessed the land to that purpose. Its very name discovers the source of its bounty. Jezreel, it means God will sow. Preacher, there's a sermon title for you. What a harvest when God sows. This Jezreel was the Lord's garden in Israel. Hosea saw it. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens. And they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn. And the wine. And the oil. And they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy Upon her that had not obtained mercy. But in Gideon's day. Rebellion. As it will do. Had converted the cabinets. Into targets. Right. 
you young men in the congregation that are in business, hear me. Rebellion had converted the cabinets and targets. Disobedience will turn your supply into your stumbling block. Right. Right. Disobedience will turn your supply into a snare. And you'll think you're honoring God and doing your duty. And you've been taken. So the enemy was in. The enemy was in the king's house. And they were overwhelmingly mighty. Considering an average eight-man military tent, at least 40 acres would have been required to accommodate them if you pushed every tent together. But in an ordinary layout with equipment and livestock, there were easily 120 acres of enemy encampment two miles around the perimeter. What a bewildering sight. Except the Lord had hemmed them in with His decree. A great And amazing victory was to happen this night. And the wonderful thing is that while we often can't see those coming, our little band of heroes had already been promised the outcome. All that was required had already been recorded in Second Chronicles 20 and verse 17. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves. Stand ye still. And see the salvation of the Lord with you. Listen, I'm going to close really quickly. Listen now. All that stood now. Between their time of great revelation. Remember that? So wonderfully opened to us in this building. From the angel of the Lord under the tree. To the miracle of the fleece. The tent door espionage. All that stood now between their time of great revelations. And their time of great deliverance was an anxious time of marching in the dark. Yes, sir. I hope the plain gospel application will be apparent. So very often, there is a night march between the first appearing of the gospel and the victory of faith that brings peace. Very often, there is a night march, even 
after conversion between the first experience of the promises and the final victory over soul oppressing sin. Night marches are a fact of the saints' experience, both before and after conversion. We had better inform ourselves then as to their demands. And little better record exists than this of Gideon in his 300. Listen now. There is no indication that Gideon interacted with the Lord at the wine press or summoned troops or marched to Gilboa in any other than daytime conditions. Even when his 10,000 men gathered at the springs of Herod for the separation of the 300, Gideon's men would have been still some six or eight miles from the Midianites. Neither side could have seen each other across the mostly flat back. This is why we find Gideon later with his special band now selected up on the slopes of Gilboa in order to survey the Midianite camp beyond. It wasn't until Gideon's... It wasn't until Gideon's final and decisive maneuver that a night march was necessary. Did you hear me? It wasn't until the final and decisive maneuver that a night march was necessary. Isn't it often the case with final and decisive maneuvers? Was it not the case on the cross? Those glorious words, it is finished, came only after a march in great darkness and strategic maneuvers. Take heart, weary saint. Marching in the dark doesn't have to mean the battle's lost. It may just mean the victory is almost come. May I make some plain and practical observations then about night marching before I close. Brethren, the first part of marching in the dark is the determination to march despite the dark. The first part of marching in the dark is the determination to march. Yes, sir. Despite the dark. I'm finding this cannot be overstated. A faltering determination to arrive at victory while it is day 
will certainly reveal itself in a retreat come nightfall. Whether you arrive at it while it is still day in your heart, in your life, in your age, or whether by the grace of God you are brought to it in the dark, the first part of a decisive nighttime march is a determination to march despite the darkness. Behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in, but durst not. There also sat a man a little distance from the door with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the names of them that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do to the men that would enter what hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian somewhat in a man. At last, when every man started back for fear, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. Yes, sir. The which, when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword and put a helmet on his head and rush towards the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force, but the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he had received, so after he had received, after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace. The success of Gideon's nighttime campaign, brethren, began, humanly speaking, with this. Verse 15, Gideon worshipped and returned and said, Arise! Yes, sir. The eye, <coughs> the eye of his faith had focused on the thing that needs no sunlight to appear. God had said. Gideon didn't need a bright day to see the Lord have delivered into your hands the host of Midian. It would seem even trembling faith has night vision when it's looking through a promise. Yeah. How about that, Sister Faith? Even trembling faith has night vision. Right, brother. Yes, sir. When it's looking through a promise. Gideon had determined to act upon the word of God, though marching in the dark, laying that way. What's more, <clears throat> I am aware there are many different kinds of darkness. 
The absence of the son had never been Gideon's primary struggle after all, had it? For Gideon, it was the immensity of the opposition and the apparent meagerness of his instruments. While I am sure many or all of his men shared in this, who is to say they were not then carrying other darknesses with them as well? Were they not men? Did they not have any health concerns? Maybe. Were none of them involved in businesses back home? Were all of them free of the ties of family and the bonds of parenthood or marriage? Did they have anybody they loved that would be slaughtered? Were they everyone equally sure of a welcome reception by Jehovah? Should they die that night? The Lord had promised the victory had He assured each one of them survival. Surely we can't think that their bold leader had struggled to the end with anxiety and doubt and none of them were moved in the least. They may not have been numbered among the faint-hearted, but they were never counted among the empty-hearted. Just so, your night march may look a bit different than mine. There are many shades of darkness. But I find in my Bible that while battles are personalized, the orders are universal. That night may have been darker for some among the 300 than for others, but every one of them marched. And every one of them were appointed the same instruments. But how does one prepare for a march of this kind? In a few verses, thanks to a written history, we can rush from crouching on the slopes of Gilboa to the ruins of a Midianite encampment across the valley. But I hope I put the real physical scene before you just well enough today to impress upon us the gritty reality of these events. Miles of valley had to be traversed before the trumpets could be blown. Miles of valley bounded to the rear with the somewhat precipitous slopes of Gilboa. Miles of flat land with nowhere to hide once daylight comes. No chariots in which to flee to safer ground if detected in the middle of this no man's land. 301 men must leave the safety of the hills, descend into the valley below, and strike out for the other side of the pass without alerting sentinels, without missing their assigned postings, and in the dark, picking through the night, every step farther from the safety of the hills, closer to the terrifying thing. How does one prepare for a march of this kind? How does one count these costs, as Jesus said? 
in the infantry handbook of the U.S. Army. This candid assertion is made at the head of that section entitled Movement During Limited Visibility. <laughs> and I quote, At night, or when visibility is poor, a platoon must be able to function in the same way as during the daylight. It must be able to control, navigate, and maintain security. I submit to you that these are useful words for us. And the advice the manual goes on to offer under these headings is simple and profoundly applicable to our study. Control, navigation, and security. In the interest of maintaining control, the soldier, we are told, may use night vision devices. Well, hallelujah. Yes, sir. Hallelujah. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But that verse would mean absolutely nothing if the psalmist hadn't been walking in the dark. For the commandment is a lamp. And the law is a light, said Solomon. But it's not so for the unbeliever. He's a falling man. If a man walk in the night, said Jesus, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. But by transposition of that verse, may we not say if a man have light in him, he may walk in the night and not stumble. Take hold of the word of God in faith, Christian soldier. It's night vision. For your night march. In the interest of control. We are told moreover. That leaders. Must move closer. To the front. Oh bless our heavenly Gideon. What happened at Calvary. I can't tell you what all happened. In the darkness of Calvary. But I'm sure of this. The leader had moved. To the front. The leader had moved to the front. Is this not captured in these inspiring words set before us on last Sabbath day? Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. Oh, what wonderful promise. What wonderful pronouns. Did you see them? Did you see them? Did you notice that Gideon did not say, when you get to the outside of the camp? No, no. He said, when I come. When I come, you follow me. If Gideon, then certainly Christ, when you find yourself in the night march, know that the captain is already in front of you. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. The day is thine, the night also. 
keep marching. Keep marching. Pastors, fathers, men, leaders, your place is in the front. Stop cowering. Keep marching. Amen. Keep marching. In the interest of control, we are told. In the interest of control, we are told. Listen, soldiers should reduce the intervals between them. Hallelujah. Yes, sir, brother. Whoever thought there was such reading in an army manual? Soldiers should reduce the intervals between them. Now here is a comforting word. Yeah. But has the Lord not already seen to this? How do we bear one another's burdens from a distance? That is done by reducing the intervals between them. And especially in the darkness. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me show you how sweetly Christ has set the example again. Acts 23.10 And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces in front of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night, the night, the night following the Lord stood by him. Yes. In the night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. What's happening here? The captain has reduced the interval between them. When Paul was marching in the dark. Soldiers of the crown need to draw closer when marching in the dark. It's in the interest of control. Well, in the interest of navigation, we are told, soldiers must practice terrain association. (laughs) To get where you need to go in the dark, in other words, one thing you'll need to do is relate the map to the features of the ground you're covering. Hallelujah. How poorly we're doing this. But how well Gideon and his men were doing it. A map had been provided them. All that was left was to relate it to the route they were marching. Every step has its place. Every path, its position on the map. The vantage point before the battle. Where's that? It's on the map. The wide valley to traverse. Where's that? It's on the map. The area to walk and the area to stand. It's on the map. The place of victory. Where's that? It's on the map. Go down, soldier, with the map in hand. You'll find everything accords with the map as you navigate the night. Well, in the interest of security, we're told. We ought to designate a point man to maintain alertness. (laughs) 
Brethren, I would remind you only of the Word. Remember them that are guides over you, for they watch for your souls. We have designated such a point, man. Have we done wrongly in doing so? But what's the use of a leader if none will follow? In spite of the efforts to keep you alert, are you sleeping still? Some sleep in Sunday service. But more sleep in their hearts. But we're marching in the night. It's high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Lord, help the point man. Yes. And awaken our hearts. We are informed moreover that in the interest of security, effective marching will use terrain to avoid the enemy. Oh, what glorious images this elicits. Consider Gideon's march. The thing that would leave a soldier feeling vulnerable in the day is the very thing that worked in their favor in the night, the valley. As divine providence would have it, the most concealed approach in that particular instance was the one which that particular silhouette racing terrain provided. In the valley of obedience, they had strategic advantage. In the valley of obedience, they had strategic advantage. But maybe it's a hill you need to shield your advance. Well, just keep the rock between you and the enemy as you move. For who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock save our God? Hide behind the Lord. Is it the noise of waters you need to cover your advance? Well, his feet are like fire, like fine brass, as if they burn in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. March beside his voice. There's a sermon title for you, preacher. March beside his voice, soldier, as you make your way through the dark. It'll cover you. It'll cover you. But finally, in the interest of security, soldiers marching at night, we are told, must make frequent listening stops. Stopping? Don't you know, though, this kind of stopping actually contributes to advancing. This is not the halt of surrender. These are not the hesitations that go before a falling back. These are the times of stillness to be certain of the advance. As you march in the dark, get still often and listen. Listen to the Word. Listen to Gideon. Listen to the messengers of providence. Listen to the promises again. Listen to the name of God. Be still, he said.
and know that I am God. But there's more to that verse. Be still and know that I will be exalted among the heathen. Be still and know that I will be exalted in the earth. Listen to it again when the night feels like defeat. Frequently get still and listen. Lo, I am with you always. The pilgrim path is to be full of listening. More than seeing, is it not? Is it not? Marching in the darkness depends more heavily on hearing than on seeing. In that glorious verse recently opened by the pastor, did those instructions not appear strange to you? In verse 17, Gideon said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be as I do, so shall ye do. How could Gideon's men watch him when it was dark? Take the real scene in again, if you will. Because you see, when Gideon gathered his men around him, for their marching orders, they were encamped with torches and fires. In that moment, he could say, look at me as I explain this thing. But you observe how the order changes in regards to the march. When I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. There's a statement here as to what will happen, not what will be seen. At first, indeed, Gideon, but how will we see what you are doing? By first listening. When I blow the trumpet, the sound of a trumpet can't be seen. But this is the order of verse 19. They blew the trumpets and bring pictures. Get this. The times of seeing were first before the night march, and then after hearing the trumpet. Until the trumpet sounded and the pitchers were broken, Gideon couldn't be seen. What care had been given in the instructions, but what faith and obedience had been practiced by the men in the dark. Listening was imperative for their nighttime operation. Listening is imperative for marching in the darkness. Oh my goodness. The straggling, the stumbling, the confusion in nighttime marches because I hadn't listened. Because I hadn't listened. You'll see me after I break the pitchers, but you'll first hear the trumpet. Dear listener, the lessons are many to be drawn from this march of Gideon. This march in the dark. What a day in Jezreel. What fear and trembling. 
What commitment and exertion. What faith and valor are on display in Gideon and these 300. Truly, I quite agree with Mr. McLaren here. The other 300 at Thermopylae, he said, have been wept over and sung. Were not these 300 as true heroes? There was strong faith as well as daring here. Indeed. Though, if I may draw a fitting comparison between those famed Greek soldiers, the ancient historian Herodotus may as well have described the enemy in Judges 7 when he wrote of that legendary day at Thermopylae, the Medes died in large numbers. They made it plain to everyone, however, and above all to the king himself, that although he had plenty of troops, he did not have many men. Yes, sir. And so the truth is revealed when the Lord moves to try men's hearts. And so we often find when the marching is at night. 135,000 Midianites was a great mass of troops, but nothing in the final tally to 300 faithful, anxious, but determined men. And if the memorial to the Spartans read like this, Stranger, tell the people of Sparta that we who lie here obeyed their commands. Perhaps a monument to our warriors may borrow from the prophet thusly. Traveler, tell the followers of God, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Stand with me, please, if you will, and turn in your hymn book. Supplement number 62. Standing with me, if you will, we sing together supplement number 62. Brethren, while we sojourn here, fight we must, but should not fear. Foes we have, but we've a friend, one that loves us to the end. Brethren, while we sojourn here, fight we must, but should not fear. Foes we have, but we've a friend, one that loves us to the end. Forward then, with courage go, Long we shall not dwell below. Soon the joyful years will come. Child, your father calls you home. In the way a thousand snares fly to take us unaware. Satan with 
malicious heart watches each unguarded part, but from Satan's malice free, saints shall soon victorious be. Soon the joyful news will come, child, your father calls, come home. But of all the foes we meet, none so mislead our feet, none betray us into sin. Like the bows that dwell within, yet let nothing spoil our peace. Christ will also conquer these. Then the joyful news will come. Child, your father calls. Thank you.